I hope you all managed to keep up. I'm aware that one lady um, asked me to go slower because she wasn't able to note all the scripture references. Now, can I reassure you that Matthew has a copy of the talk that I've given with all the scripture references on it. Now, with that in mind, are you happy for me to proceed at yesterday's pace? I, what I don't want is you to feel I just can't keep up with the references going too quickly. So what I'll, I'll do is I'll speak at what I consider to be the right pace. And if you're struggling to keep up, would you please just put a hand up? I would much rather that than you told me afterwards. So please don't feel embarrassed. Take it from me. I've asked you to do that. Thank you. Well, we finished looking at um, the Holy Spirit and the, why each member of the Trinity is a person and dealing with those who claim that there is one God who appears in different modes. What I've been trying to do is to build up our understanding of the Trinity from the basics that we have the Trinity appearing in the Old Testament right at the beginning of Genesis, that we have the clear teaching that the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit is our each Jehovah and then the consequences that flow from that. Now I wanted to, we, to look and we, we, we touched on it last night at analogies and why human analogies do not fit the Trinity and I hope that you're going to have please the title slide of the talk which says talk to oh, just pause until we get that thank you again Going back to our title verse, I think it's a helpful verse, isn't it? It keeps us on our toes on this subject. To whom then will ye liken me, or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Well, that's one of those questions that begs the answer, nothing and nobody. The created order does not tell us about our God, except in the two ways that Romans 1 tells us that there is one God of eternal power. But otherwise, human analogies fail, not least because nothing in this world is three persons in one. I'd like to illustrate this by referring to an increasingly popular author and speaker called Dr. Mike Reeds. He says this in The Good God, and the location is a Kindle location, but you'll find it in the paperback as well. This is what he says, and I'd like you to think about this. Does this reflect the Trinity? There is something about the relationships and difference between the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, that images the being 
of God. Something we saw the Apostle pick up on in 1 Corinthians 11.3 that man is the head of the woman as Christ, as God is the head of Christ, to paraphrase it. Eve is a person quite distinct from Adam and yet she has all her life and being from Adam. She comes from his side, is bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh and is one with him in the flesh. Genesis 2 verses 21 to 24. Far better than leaves, eggs and liquids that reflects a personal God, a son who is distinct from his father and yet who is of the very being of the father and who is eternally one with him in the spirit. Have a think about that. Could I be so bold? No names, no pack drills. Just out of interest, honestly, who, just put your hand up if you think that that's a true statement. Put your hand up if you think it's a false statement. Y yes. Sorry, could I repeat the question? To put your hand up if you think this is a true statement, that what Michael Reeves has said in his book is true. Do you think that the relationship of a man and a woman reflects the relationship between the father and the son? Who thinks it's a false statement? Not true. I see some tentative hands going up. Who's not sure? That's fair enough. Not sure? Uh, sorry? Yes. I'm sure. I say it's incorrect. Not least, and I'll come on to this, but the marriage relationship is used as an image in Scripture, isn't it? It's not used as an image of God. It's used as an image of Christ and his church. That's the only image we are allowed to draw from the marriage union. Note the reason that the woman was made in the first place. She was made, and I don't want to be politically incorrect, sisters, but she was made to be a helpmeet for the man. Was Christ made to be the helpmeet of God, I ask, when each person of the Godhead is God, exists independently of each other? It's false. Although it might have a superficial attraction. And we must remember that an individual human being is made in the image of God, not just married couples. Otherwise, you could get some extraordinary false teachings coming out of that. I, mean, I just take us to Genesis 9, verse 6. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. 
It doesn't say, in the image of God made he man and woman together, does he? I believe, and I haven't got time to go into this, but if you look at John Gill, I mentioned him yesterday, look at his commentary on verses, on Genesis 1, 26 and 27. John Gill. And I recommend, if you haven't got it already, you probably have, but eSword is a good online Bible software. I expect some of you have that. And if you, if you don't have it, would you ask me at the end if you'd like it? And I can get it to Matthew on the disc and we can get it printed out for you. For those, particularly those who are not computer literate. Um, okay. I believe it's really talking about his moral character. That's what makes man in the image of God. His ability to reason. His self-consciousness. His spiritual aspect. That's in the unfallen nature. Well, I haven't got time to go into that further, but I do not believe that it's talking about man and woman together. Turning to Ephesians 5, we have, as I've already said, the correct biblical analogy. And we should have it up on the screen. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of a wife, even as Christ is the head of the church and he is the saviour of a body. The danger with making the marriage relationship a picture of the Trinity is obvious. While man and woman are made one by the marriage act, that is the, obviously the act of coming together once married in sexual union, is that they still remain two separate human beings. It is true that both share the same human nature and that they are joined together in the eyes of God. However, they each possess independent wills. If any of you are married, you will know that. And I'm not married, but I've got a mother and a father and they had two independent wills. Whereas, as we saw yesterday, there's only one will in God. We see that very obviously in the history of the fall of man. Another unpopular doctrine, Eve was the first deceived, wasn't she? She used her will first. Now, I don't know if this is right or wrong, but some have said that the reason why the fall is attributed to Adam is because God could have created another woman, he could not have created another man. There are only two Adams, the first and the last. I don't know if that is right or wrong, but it's the thought that has been given, and I, I think it's, it, it has something in it, doesn't it? An interesting thought, because the fall is attributed to Adam, even though Eve was the first to disobey. The biblical teaching is that a wife should obey her husband for the very reason that they are not equal in power and authority. And I'm sorry to be unpopular again because the Bible does teach, and it's an important truth, isn't it, that the woman is the weaker vessel. And I believe that 
feminism is a tyranny for women, actually. A woman is set free when she is treated as she is made. And the problem in marriages is not that the woman is called to submit to the husband, but so often the husband doesn't love the wife as Christ loves the church. That's the problem, isn't it? It's the two sides we don't see in place so often. We see the husband lording it over the weaker vessel of the wife. The wife resenting it, understandably, and the marriage falling apart as a result. Yet, going back to the Trinity, each person of the Trinity is equal in power and authority because each is Jehovah. We don't have two equals in a marriage. Tragically, we do now. We have it in gay marriage. And look at the danger with using the Trinity as a picture of human relationships or vice versa. Someone's going to come along and say, look, the proper picture of the Trinity is not a man and a woman married, but two men married. Or they might go and say it's three men married. Tragically, these things are increasingly happening. And if we're going to misuse the Trinity to bolster our arguments for the position of women, either as equal as the egalitarians do who teach that women should preach, or that women should not preach, which is my position, but they, when they wrongly use or abuse the Trinity to lend support to their arguments, you're opening the door for other people to do it. And it's dangerous. And it must not happen. Well, we'll come on to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3 later. As we will see, although Christ is equal to God as God, he is obedient to God as man. Philippians 2, verse 8, tells us about the Lord Jesus. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of a cross. He willingly took upon himself human nature, didn't he? He humbled himself. He became obedient to God to death, obedient as a man. Don't forget, he learned obedience in the things that he suffered. If he was eternally obedient to the Father, he wouldn't need to do that, would he? Because he'd be obedient already. That's Hebrews I'm quoting from. If we take marriage as a picture of the Trinity, then we end up with a God in man's image. When, as our title verse tells us, to whom then will ye liken me, or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? God has no equal. He cannot be known by studying mankind. Mankind can know himself better by studying God, on the other hand. He can understand his true purpose and who he really is in Christ, can't he? And I hope that in the time that we're spending together, so short that it is, that we will gain a greater understanding of ourselves through a study of who God is and will help us in our worship and our relationship with him. So we're moving on now to the distinctions between the persons of the Godhead. We have so far discovered that there is one God in three persons. However, apart from the fact that we've identified three names for each person of the Godhead, Father, Son, is also known as the Word in John, 
and Holy Spirit, we have no way of distinguishing them within the Godhead at the moment. We need, therefore, to see how the Bible distinguishes between the persons, because otherwise we are left with one God who is indistinguishable and only, as it were, distinguishable in how he acts towards the creation and to us in redemption. In John's Gospel and in his first letter, the Lord Jesus is referred to as the only begotten Son of God. In John 1 verse 14, the Lord Jesus is described as the only begotten of the Father. It's important to distinguish between the term begotten and created. To beget means to bring forth as when a child is born, as when a calf is delivered. And this is to be distinguished from when a child is created, which is at the point of conception. How tragic it is that so many in the world refuse to believe that human life begins at conception. It is a sobering fact that this year we mark 50 years in the United Kingdom since the passing of the Abortion Act in 1967. And I am told that statistics reveal that in that time, in those 50 years, some 8.8 million babies have been murdered under the Act. Murdered because they had been conceived. Life had started. The Bible makes no distinction between a baby in the womb and a baby who is born. All of those babies were created human beings. The only distinction between them is that they were not brought forth from their mother's wombs, whereas we all were. Now the Greek word used for begotten in the five times that John uses the word, it's an unusual Greek word called monogenes. I probably mispronounced it, forgive me, I'm no Greek scholar. There has been a certain amount of controversy over the meaning of this word, which, as I said, is only used five times in the Bible. Each time it's used by John, to describe the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to have the five occasions up on the screen. First, in John 1, verse 14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Then John 1, verse 18, No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. By the way, I am looking for any hands if I am going too fast. Please do raise them. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Fourth, John 3 verse 18 He that believeth on him is not condemned but he that believeth not is condemned already 
because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then 1 John 4 verse 9, In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Now there are some scholars who maintain that monogenes, or monogenes, means one of a kind, and that this word has nothing to do with begetting or bringing forth. You will therefore find the word begotten is missing from a number of the modern versions. Thus, in the NIV, you will, it reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The word begotten is, however, used in the King James and the New King James versions. It may be used in other versions too, but it is used in those two. There is a number of articles available on the internet that argue for the traditional translation of monogenes as meaning begotten. You may be aware of the Arian controversy of the 4th century. And that controversy was around the person of Jesus Christ. Arius believed that Jesus Christ was a created being, the highest created being, but nevertheless created and not God. Athanasius was instrumental in opposing the Arians um, who claimed that the Lord Jesus was a created being and not God. In one place, in his second discourse against the Arians, in paragraph 62. Now you can find this on the internet. I've got the quote for you. Athanasius, who wrote in Greek, says plainly that Christ is called only begotten, using the word monogenes, because he was generated or came forth from the Father. And this is what he writes. For the same cannot be both only begotten and firstborn, except in different relations. That is, only begotten monogenes because of his generation from the Father. And as it has been said, and firstborn, because of his condescension to the creation and his making the many his brethren. So he is using only begotten, the word monogenes, in relation to his generation from the Father. I hope that's not confused you all. But what we're saying is that the Lord, that these verses, when it, where begotten is used, is meaning that the Lord Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, not as man, but as the second person of the Trinity, came forth from his Father. Now we're going to go on and see that this must have been an eternal generation an eternal begetting, an eternal bringing forth from his Father because he's God. We'll come on to that in a moment. Apart from John's reference to the begetting of the Lord Jesus, that is the bringing forth of the Lord Jesus, his generation or his bringing forth from the Father is taught in other parts of Scripture. And there are people like Kevin Giles who lives in Melbourne. Um, do, do read his books. I don't agree with him on everything, but on most things I do. He has stood up 
for eternal generation. He stood up for the traditional teaching um, of the Trinity. One of the few voices today who has. Now, the first of all, God the Father is defined by his relationship to God the Son. The Son is the Father's only Son and is unique because he shares the Father's nature. We saw that yesterday because everything, every attribute that God has, God the Father has, God the Son has as well. So he shares his Father's nature and being. And we see this in particular in two scriptures. In Hebrews 1 verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So he is the express image of the Father. Secondly, Colossians 1 verse 15 who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, the image of God. The father-son relationship itself implies that the son, being uncreated because he's God, and without beginning or ending, because he's eternal, is come forth from or is begotten by the father in eternity, because that's what a father-son relationship implies, doesn't it? If it's a true father-son relationship. A true father generates his son. He could not have been brought forth in time, because then he would not be eternal. If he was not begotten, he would not be God's unique son, sharing his essence or being. He could be an equal with God, having no relationship with him, but that's not how the Bible describes him. He's described specifically as the son of the father. The father is defined by his son and vice versa. Second, it is only human beings who are adopted by the father. The son is the true son. And even the modern versions describe him as the one and only, implying generation. Human beings are, of course, created beings who do not share the same essence as God. They're not eternal since they were created in time, whether Jew or Gentile. And we've got a few quotes here, which will be familiar. Romans 8, verse 23. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. Second, Romans 9, verse 4. Who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises. Galatians 4, verse 5. Why did Christ come? To redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And then finally, Ephesians 1 verse 5, having predestinated us 
unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. We are adopted into the family of God. Christ is the true Son. Third, that God the Son is begotten in eternity is consistent with Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah in the following verses. Micah 5 verse 2 But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. He's gone forth from the Father from everlasting, speaking of his eternal generation. Second, and I know this is controversial, but I believe it is properly used. Proverbs 8, verses 23 to 25. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning, or ever the earth was. When there were no depths, I was brought forth when there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills was I brought forth. What is... um, uh, What is Solomon speaking of? He's speaking of wisdom. Now, I appreciate that wisdom is spoken about in the feminine, when he is talking about wisdom. But I believe here that he's gone beyond himself to prophesy about the wisdom of God, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are other places in Scripture, look at David in the Psalms, where he goes beyond himself and finds himself prophesying about some one, the Lord Jesus Christ, way beyond what his natural knowledge would have. Way beyond the anointed king of Israel, he's talking about God's anointed the Son of God. And this is what we're seeing, I believe, here. We know that in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 24, which, well, maybe I haven't got on the screen, sorry, that Christ is the wisdom of God. And I believe that this verse can't be speaking about wisdom itself. Because wisdom is an attribute of God. He is the only wise God. So so to say that wisdom was brought forth from everlasting, it doesn't make sense. Because as an attribute of God, it is part of God. Now the Lord Jesus Christ is not part of God the Father. He, He is what John Calvin says, he's autotheos. He is He subsists independent of the Father, but he came from the Father. And he came from the Father eternally because the Lord Jesus Christ, in common with the Father and the Holy Spirit, has no beginning, has no ending, is eternal. That's why I tend now to say, so that I can't be misunderstood, that he is eternally generated rather than he was eternally generated. In case someone says, oh, well, then you're saying there's such thing as a point in eternity. There isn't such thing as a point in eternity. And it's something that our human minds can't get around. But we accept it by faith, because that's how, that is the teaching of Scripture. 
And then Psalm 2, verse 7. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. The word used here is the Hebrew word which means to be born or brought forth. It's a different word to monogenes, obviously, because monogenes is Greek. That's a word that John uses in the New Testament. This is an Old Testament Hebrew word. I wasn't able to find what the Septuagint said, I'm afraid. I did have a look, but my knowledge of Hebrew was not sufficient. But maybe we have some Hebrew scholars here who can help. Some have doubted the meaning of this verse because it was used by Paul in Acts 18, verse 33, in the context of the resurrection, where he says, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. However, this verse cannot mean that Christ was brought forth as God's son at his resurrection. Because this would mean that Christ was his own begetter. Have a think about that. If Christ was brought forth at his resurrection, who raised Christ from the dead? The Father? Who else? Sorry? Thank you. The Son and the Holy Spirit. And for our purposes... John 2, verses 19 to 21. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. One of the mysteries, isn't it? And it's... Uh, and it's described as the indivisible operations of the Godhead. It's one of the principles that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit always act together. And this is an example of it. So, Psalm 2, verse 7, cannot mean that Christ was brought forth at his, res at his resurrection, as some people erroneously believe. We therefore believe that as the Son, he is the real and natural Son of God. Therefore, he must be the Son by natural generation. And remember, generation simply means, it's another word for begetting or bringing forth. That's what gener to generate means. He's generated by the Father. That is what makes the Father the Father and the Son the Son. Like every son sharing his Father's nature, the Son of God is generated by his Father. Furthermore, that generation must be, as I've already said, an eternal generation. That is, the Father must have generated the Son in eternity. If that were not the case, then there would be a time when the Son does not exist. And if that was the case, he would not be God. There, was, there are some, such as the brother I mentioned at the beginning of these talks, who deny that the Lord Jesus is eternally God's Son. Such people deny that the Lord Jesus is eternally begotten of the Father and claim that he only became the Son of God either at his resurrection, that's what some people say, we've dealt with that, or 
at his birth in the world. I'm told that this brother is still considering his position and I pray that he changes his mind. Incarnational sonship, this is what those who believe that Jesus Christ became the Son of God at his birth, is wrong for the following reasons. First, and I submit most obviously, Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 2, tells us, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Here, Scripture plainly tells us that God made the worlds through his Son. At the time when the Son created the world, he was not incarnate. He didn't. He was not a man, was he? Because it was predated. The creation of the world predated his birth into the world. Yet Scripture describes him nevertheless being God's Son at that time. That ought to be enough to dismiss the theory out of hand. And then we've got John 1, verse 18. And this is an important verse. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. The plain meaning of the verse is that the Son, as man on earth, has declared the Father, because as the Son of God, he is at the same time in the bosom of his Father, sharing the same essence and being and knowing his Father's secrets. And this doesn't speak of a temporal sonship being in the bosom of his father, does it? It speaks of an eternal sonship. And as man, he declares his father. Not because of his birth into this world as, his, as the son of his father, but because he, he is in eternity in the bosom of his father. And because he is in the bosom of his father, he's able to declare his father and say, whoever has seen me has seen my father. Third, if the Word of God only became the Son of God at his incarnation by the Holy Spirit, then this would make the Holy Spirit Christ's Father. And the Godhead would be confounded. We would have confusion in the Godhead. I think that verse should be up there. Luke 1, verse 35. Does that come next? Yes, thank you. Do we have the verse itself? I don't know what's happened to that. But I think you're all familiar with it and do turn it up. I don't know why, why it's not come on the screen, but there we are. Um, but we all know, don't we? That it, let's just turn to Luke 1.35. I think it's such an important verse that I would rather not leave it unspoken. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. The Holy Ghost 
was going to overshadow Mary. What was he actually doing? He was, through his supernatural operation, he was making a body for the Lord Jesus Christ. For a body was created for him, for the eternal Son of God to inhabit. So yes, he is, a body was created, but the Lord Jesus himself, as the Son of God, was not created. He is not a created being. Fourth, as we've seen, one of the attributes of God is his unchanging nature. In Malachi 3, verse 6, the Lord says, I am the Lord, I change not. Hebrews 13, verse 8, applies this attribute to the Son. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. The doctrine of incarnational sonship, that is, the Lord Jesus only becoming the Son at his birth, brings change to the Godhead because the first person adopts the title of Father only at the Lord Jesus' birth. And the second person only adopts the title of son at his birth into the world. And this, in my judgment, is actually a denial of the father and the son, which in 1 John 2 verse 22 is described as a very serious heresy. This is what it says in 1 John 22 verses 22 to 23. Who is a liar? But he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same also hath not the Father. That's why it's so serious. It's not intentional, I'm sure. But the effect of denying the eternal Sonship of Christ is to deny the eternal Father and to deny the eternal Son. The lesson is that we must not go further than Scripture and there are things that our natural minds can't understand. We accept them by faith. It's like creation really, isn't it? Six days of creation, men can't get their heads around it because they listen to the scientists. But the Word of God tells us and we must believe what the Word of God says. I'd like to close with John Gill's commentary on verse 22 of 1 John 2. This is what he said. And I'm taking it up full, uh, part way through the sentence. I'm sorry about that. He's speaking about the person who qualifies for this description. All that denies that God is the Father of Christ and that Christ is the Son of God who will not allow that there is any such relation in nature between them. And this is really the important part. Who affirm that Christ is only the Son of God by adoption, which is what would have to happen if he became the Son at his birth, or because of his love to him, or because of in his incarnation, dealing with those who deny eternal sonship, because they say he is, becomes the Son at his birth, and resurrection from the dead. Those who use that verse we looked at in Acts to say that Christ was begotten or brought forth at his resurrection. 
or that he is not his true and proper son, only in a figurative and metaphorical sense, that he is not the natural and eternally begotten son of God, only by office, which is what the denial of eternal sonship gives you. Not a son by natural generation, but a son by office and as mediator, and that God is only his father as having installed him into an office. Or he that denies that these two are distinct from each other, but affirms that father is the son and the son is the father, and so confounds them both, and by confounding both denies that there are either father or son. All such persons are antichrists or opposers of Christ. Friends, let's pray for anyone we know who is in this error. And let's pray for ourselves that we keep our doctrine pure. Because it, the word of God says, be careful lest you think you stand, lest you fall. Let's now, to, um, have we got time to carry on? I've got quite a lot of material to cover. Um, but if you need a break, please let me know. Can we carry on a bit further, Werner? Short break, thank you. By all means. <laughs>